You are listening to an MLGA Network podcast. It was a normal day at Mount Carmel. The sun had yet to rise and few were awake. Paul Feta and his son Kalani were awake and milling around, preparing for their trip to Austin that day. David Koresh and others began their day like they would any other. Breakfast was made, children played and fought, and the dogs barked outside. Koresh and the others wished Paul and Kalani well and hoped that their sales of the gun show would go well as they closed up the U-Haul and began their journey. As the Davidian morning rituals continued, the door swung open loudly and someone rushed in. Koresh's brother-in-law, David Jones, stood before him, winded and heart-racing. He told Koresh what the newsman had told him. The ATF was coming. They were on their way to Mount Carmel. Koresh wasn't shocked. He knew this day would come. He knew that this apostate power would eventually come against him. He had prepared for this moment. And now, Babylon was at his front door. Welcome to the Red Pill of the Week. I'm Cam Harless from Make Liberty Great Again, and today we are continuing the story of David Koresh, and the time the ATF hastily served a warrant with bullets and helicopters, causing the longest shootout in American law enforcement history. You are a slave. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. All I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. In 1992, the ATF was on its last leg. The ATF was an independent bureau within the Department of the Treasury. Having just gone through the PR nightmare that was the entrapment, standoff, and the murders that happened on Ruby Ridge just months earlier, their funding was coming into question. There was talk when Clinton assumed office of taking the ATF, cutting its funding, moving it out of the Treasury Department, and making it a little brother agency to the FBI. If this happened, there were a lot of higher-ups that would lose their jobs. They needed a win. They needed to counter the bad reputation they earned when they, along with the FBI, butchered Vicki Weaver as she held her infant daughter. They needed an easy takedown and some solid PR to keep the status quo and retain their jobs as the state's masked thugs. With the echoes of Ruby Ridge and Jonestown in the atmosphere, they decided on their boogeyman. They knew that it would play well to the cameras and give them the public backing that they needed. News was, there was a madman in Waco. There were rumors of statutory rape, stockpiling guns for an army of God, and rampant child abuse. As you know from the previous episode, these charges were investigated, and no evidence was found that proved impropriety. But that didn't matter to the ATF. This was an easy one. They had a boogeyman, they had plenty of armed agents, and they had the perfect story to justify a quick and simple raid that would prove the worth of the ATF to the American people. They could be heroes again. Heroes that enforced the morals of American society and retaliated against strange people like they felt they should have in the case of Jim Jones. This was supposed to be an easy win. Seeing how poorly things had gone on Ruby Ridge, 
the ATF wanted to be prepared. They amassed their agents at Fort Hood, 63 miles from Waco, and began their dress rehearsals for the raid. They were kind enough to let the U.S. Army pay for part of their training for this event. Of course, they had to have a good excuse as to why they should be able to use the Army's land and medical resources to prepare for this siege in Waco. So they let the Army think that this was an anti-drug raid rather than a raid to grab a stockpile of illegal weapons. The ATF claimed that Koresh was possibly operating a methamphetamine lab to establish a drug nexus and obtain military assets under the War on Drugs. The only problem is that there was never any evidence whatsoever that David Koresh or any of the other Branch Davidians did drugs, and there was even less evidence that they were manufacturing or trafficking drugs. In fact, Koresh had explicitly invited the police department into Mount Carmel to get rid of a meth lab that was left there by previous tenants when they moved back to the complex. But that didn't matter to the ATF. They had their mission and their narrative, and they used it to their advantage. The investigation into Koresh and the Davidians allegedly began when someone heard what they thought was automatic weapon fire on the premises of Mount Carmel. It didn't matter that Koresh and his followers were in the legal business of selling guns. It didn't matter that they had gone through the proper channels and made sure that they were licensed. It definitely didn't matter that any law or regulation on a civilian's right to bear arms is a direct violation of the Second Amendment of the Constitution and a violation of intrinsic human rights. The only thing that mattered to the ATF was that a UPS driver had contacted them and told them that one of the packages that he had delivered had opened to reveal firearms, inert grenade casings, and black powder. It only mattered that a former Branch Davidian and detractor had claimed that Koresh had M16 lower receiver parts and that a neighbor claimed that he'd heard automatic gunfire. The ATF had their target. On July 30th of 1992, ATF agents Aguilera and Skinner visited the Branch Davidian's gun dealer, Henry McMahon, who tried to get them to talk with Koresh on the phone. Koresh offered to let the ATF inspect the Branch Davidian's weapons and paperwork and asked to speak with Aguilera, but Aguilera declined. Robert Sanders, a retired ATF deputy director, claimed that if he had been active and in a position to do so, he would have taken up that offer and checked the weapons to ensure that they were operating within the confines of the law. But they didn't. Sanders stated explicitly that it appeared that the ATF had planned the raid for publicity purposes rather than for so-called justice. When the ATF went to a judge for their warrant, they didn't bring just a charge of stockpiling weapons or the claim that the Davidians had illegal, fully automatic weapons or accessories that could be added to semi-automatic weapons to convert them to automatic. Although many believe that statutory rape and other sexual offenses occurred in Mount Carmel, the ATF has no jurisdiction over these crimes whatsoever. Yet, it was used as justification in the warrant. In fact, two-thirds of the warrant was about alleged sexual crimes. There were several avenues that the ATF could have explored if they were seeking what they called justice. They could have checked the guns as was previously offered by Koresh. They could have picked him up while he was jogging. They could have had the sheriff, who knew Koresh personally, go up to the front door and knock. They could have walked through the front door and peacefully administered the unjust laws that they lived to enforce. Eight or nine months before the raid, the group had been told by other neighbors that law enforcement officials were asking to put recording devices on their property to determine if the group was firing illegal automatic weapons. The Davidians went to the sheriff's office and asked why they were trying to plant listening devices rather than coming over and looking at the guns as they had offered. The ATF never gave them that courtesy. It never seemed to occur to them. 
The sheriff did not understand this and argued that they should have notified the Davidians of the warrant and tried to execute it peacefully. He also asked why he hadn't been informed of the raid. Instead of going to the sheriff, the leader of the ATF's PR team called the media and told them that something was going to be happening at Mount Carmel and they might want to be there to catch it. To the corporate press, this was exciting. Just the day before, on February 27, 1993, the Waco Tribune Herald began publishing The Sinful Messiah, a series of articles that demonized Koresh. On February 28, 1993, news vans and cameras sat just outside of the Mount Carmel Center. They showed up 30 minutes before the ATF had planned their raid. They were set up and ready to broadcast the fireworks to an audience of millions. Hours before, Paul Fatta, the member who ran the gun sales for the Davidians, left the complex to head to a gun show in Austin, Texas. He had taken 90% of the guns that were at Mount Carmel with him, leaving a smaller amount for defense. The majority of the stockpile, which should have been called inventory, left that morning with Paul and his son. Around 45 minutes before the siege, one of the reporters that had been tipped off about the raid asked a postman for directions to Mount Carmel. The mail carrier happened to be Koresh's brother-in-law, who promptly let the Davidians know that trouble was on its way. The ATF had implanted an agent, Robert Rodriguez, next door to Koresh and the Davidians. Their cover was noticeably poor. They presented themselves as college students, but were in their 30s, had new expensive cars, were not registered at the local schools, and didn't keep a schedule that would have fit any legitimate employment or classes. The Davidians referred to their house as the undercover house. Rodriguez spent some time with Koresh and said that he'd even considered joining the Branch Davidians after getting to know David over time. The morning of the raid, Koresh told Rodriguez that he knew that a raid was imminent. Rodriguez contacted his superiors and told them that the Davidians knew that they were coming and that the raid ought to be called off. His recommendation was ignored. Rodriguez was asked what the Davidians were doing when he had found out that his cover was blown and he made his exit. They were praying, he said. As helicopters began encircling the complex, the Davidians prayed. Koresh, seeing cameras and hearing helicopter blades, watched cattle trailers come up the road. He told the women and the children to take cover in their rooms. He called a few choice men to move to the front of the building in defensive positions. He told them that he would try to speak to the agents, and what happened next would depend on the agents' intentions. As the cattle trailers, filled with a hundred-strong horde of armed and armored men, pulled up to the complex and took position, aiming their weapons at the front door. Koresh went to the door and opened it. What's going on? asked Koresh. The agents pointed their weapons at him and yelled to lay down that they had a warrant. Koresh, seeing guns aimed at his face, closed the door. If you ask the ATF, Koresh decided to ambush them in that moment. He had drawn them close to the front door so that men with heavy weaponry could shoot the cops through the door and murder them. If you ask the survivors, the ones that were in the compound, they say the first gunshots didn't come from inside. There was a subset of the siege team that the ATF had sent to shoot the dogs. The ATF maintains they didn't shoot the dogs before they started shooting their own automatic weapons at the front door. They also claimed that there were no accidental discharges or any other notable mistakes. But the dogs were shot early on, and bullets started flying. It would be understandable in some sense if an on-edge agent had started shooting when he heard an accidental discharge, or mistook the shooting of the dogs as fire coming from behind the door. But there were cameras on the ground. 
The ATF was collecting video the entire time. They had three cameras to catch these moments. So we know what happened, right? No. Those cameras and footage were lost. There is absolutely no record remaining despite the ATF having three cameras on site to catch it. But the ATF keeps records. There would be pages from the surveillance log that would sort out who shot first, right? Those were lost as well. But that's not even the last piece of evidence that could be used to determine who took the first shots. There was the front door that was shot through. They should be able to tell more about what happened and which bullet holes were created first. But again, no. The door itself was taken into evidence and then eventually lost before being analyzed. I believe this is what we might call a pattern. They shot and killed the dogs first, but behind that door, David Koresh was shot in the hand and through the stomach, and his father-in-law, Perry Jones, was shot and killed. Within a minute of the beginning of the siege, Branch Davidian Wayne Martin called emergency services from inside of Mount Carmel. Here they come again. That's them shooting. That's not us. There are women and children in here. The law is clear in these cases. Even an arrest by lawfully constituted officers can be resisted if the officers use excessive force. The ATF shot at a house filled with women and children with automatic weapons to execute a warrant to take away automatic weapons. This was an unreasonable search done in an unreasonable manner with excessive force. So, when the Davidians shot back to protect themselves and their babies, it was absolutely justifiable per the law. Thus began the longest shootout between civilians and state agents in U.S. history. For two hours, gunshots were exchanged between the Branch Davidians and the ATF. All the while, the Branch Davidians called emergency services and begged for the raid to be called off. The dispatchers tried to get the communications from inside of Mount Carmel to the ATF. The ATF said that they couldn't communicate with 911 or get the calls asking them to call off the shooting. But the PR team was nearby with many fax machines and computers to make sure that they could collect what they needed for their project. Helicopters flew around Mount Carmel, creating a diversion. They drew fire from the Branch Davidians and were eventually grounded by the ATF. The agents grabbed ladders and set them against the side of the building, shooting into windows indiscriminately as they climbed the ladders and entered the building through windows on the roof. They tried to get into Koresh's room to find this supposed stack of automatic weapons that they were attempting to prove the existence of. They threw flashbangs into windows and continued shooting at any window and any movement that they could see. After 45 minutes, the agents began running out of ammo and the shooting slowed although it didn't stop for two hours. During this time, four ATF agents were killed and 16 were wounded. The ATF stopped shooting the moment they ran out of bullets. The Branch Davidians had not run out, and it didn't seem like they would anytime soon. When the ATF ran out of ammo and said that they would leave the property, the Davidians promptly stopped shooting. They didn't have to. They let the ATF retreat and they let them evacuate their dead and wounded without incident. Throughout this incident, six Davidians died. Perry Jones was killed at the front door. Jadine Wendell was gunned down in her room. Winston Blake and Peter Hipsman were also killed in the fray. 17-year-old Peter Gent was in the silo cleaning rust when the shooting began. 
When he heard the shooting, he went to the top of the silo. Video shows a helicopter flying by and Peter falling. He died of a gunshot wound that looked to have come from the helicopter. Despite being allowed to evacuate their own dead, the ATF did not let them retrieve Peter's body from the top of the silo. Once the shooting was over and the ATF had pulled back, ATF agents established communications with Koresh and others inside the complex and negotiations began. While on a recorded line, Jim Cavanaugh, one of the negotiators, said that there were no guns on the helicopters that day. He was speaking to a member of the church when Koresh overheard this. You're a damn liar, Jim, said Koresh. Koresh called him out, and Kavanaugh held his ground for a short time while Koresh recounted the gunfire coming from the helicopters and the death of Peter Gent. You're a damn liar, repeated Koresh. Then the doublespeak began and the goalposts moved. What I'm saying is that those helicopters didn't have mounted guns, okay? Kavanaugh lied. Video shows that the helicopters had mounted guns. I'm not disputing the fact that there might have been fire from the helicopters, Kavanaugh continued. If you say there was fire from the helicopters and you were there, that's okay with me. What I'm telling you is that there were no mounted guns, you know, outside mounted guns on those helicopters. Koresh agreed with this faulty assessment, appeased. After this tragedy, not a single agent made a report on the day of the raid, which is highly unusual. But the ATF initiated a shooting review. The attorney promptly told them to stop the review because they were creating Brady material. Brady material is another term for exculpatory evidence, evidence that could prove the accused innocent. During the night, three Branch Davidians fled and tried to get away from the violence that had engulfed Mount Carmel. Michael Schroeder, one of the men who tried to escape, was shot dead. Eleven agents fired on him after he raised a pistol. He had seven bullet wounds. His body stayed there for five days. After the agents walked off with the other escapees in cuffs, they heard two more shots. At the end of the day, there were six dead Branch Davidians, four dead ATF agents, and many wounded. All over a warrant that could have been executed peacefully. Over some guns and gun parts that Koresh had offered to let the ATF come into Mount Carmel to check, alongside all the paperwork. It was a repeat of what happened on Ruby Ridge. A woman shot while holding her baby and all. The ATF knew how to do one thing well, and that was to screw everything up just to have the FBI come in and clean up their mess. And as before, the FBI did come in. With the death of the agents, charges were filed against every adult Branch Davidian in Waco, both in and outside of Mount Carmel that morning. And, just as before, when the FBI came in to clean up the ATF's mess, they too would only make things worse. Thus, in the hands of the FBI, a 51-day standoff began, and a soon-to-be-recurring nightmare was being planted into the minds of the American public. And that's where we'll pick up on Part 3 of the Waco Massacre in the next Red Pill of the Week. There's your Red Pill. Don't take the whole bottle. I saw him back. He rode through the gates of the sea. This was the man 